0: Hello, and welcome to the Vine Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT, and today I'm joined by Philip West, Director of North America Transportation, and Mark Purdy, Senior Manager, Dry National Transportation Strategy and Operations, both at General Mills. I last had Phil and Mark on the Freight Vine in August 2020, just as the pandemic demand was peaking. On that episode, we talked about how General Mills was adjusting to meet the dramatically increasing and chaotic demand. Well, a lot has changed in two years, but surprisingly, a lot has remained the same. In this episode, Phil and Mark discuss how General Mills shifted and adapted their operations both during the pandemic as well as now in the post-pandemic era, and they talk about how supply chain decision-making has sped up, how technology has enabled this faster cadence and actually made it much more comprehensive and connected, and how people are still the critical component to their operations. Following my conversation with Mark and Phil, I'll be joined by Dr. Ina to discuss the Truckload Market Update. So let's get started. Hi, Mark and Phil. Welcome to the Freightvine Podcast. Hey, Chris.
1: Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Appreciate you having us back.
0: Yeah. Mark? Hey, Chris. How's it going? Great to be back. Yeah, it's going well. I just want to hear it uh, well. So it's great to have you guys in the same room because as we were saying earlier, you can hear each other this time. But the reason why I wanted you guys on the podcast is because we last had you on in August of 2020, which I can't believe it is almost two years ago. Pandemic was in full force. Vaccines weren't out yet. Demand for comfort foods. A lot of the General Mills product were was peaking or we thought was peaking was certainly on the rise at that point. And so let's talk about how General Mills Transportation handled that growing and shifting demand during the pandemic. So, Phil, what were the biggest changes that you had to make during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a wild ride since the last time we talked. And I'd say overall, our supply chain has evolved a ton. Um, last time we talked, we were increasing co-manufacturing capacity quite a bit in response to that surge in demand. We also added some internal capacity along the way. We've had a wide variety of raw material disruptions and... Throughout the pandemic, we, our organization, we never really let our foot off the gas of reshaping our portfolio either. And so our supply chain is, has evolved a lot. But job one has always been to make sure that we're on shelf and that we're servicing the business. So from a transportation perspective, we had to make a couple of changes. I, I would say, though, one thing that didn't change, and I'd be remiss if I didn't call this out up front, is our overarching strategy. And Chris, we've talked for years about what our strategy is, right? We're heavy asset. We've got some deep, deep strategic relationships, and we think that that strategy wins over market cycles, and we certainly th- th- think that it won during the pandemic as well, but that doesn't mean that we didn't have to make any adjustments. I'd say the two biggest ones really were centered around where some of our strategic carriers played in our network. We had to focus a lot more on like, in-and-out balance across the network, positioning their capacity where we needed it most or where we had more consistent volumes. Um, so that we're eliminating as many empty miles as possible in the network. So that would be the first. The second one is that even though relatively speaking it was it was still a, s- a small number, we had more distressed freight in our network um, than than we've historically had. And so we actually had to stand up a brokerage captaincy model where we had regional captains with some predetermined rates that we refreshed quarterly um, to help cover that distressed freight. Um, and that really helped us. Kind of closed the gaps on that job one, making sure that we were servicing the business during the pandemic. So those are probably the two biggest changes we made.
0: Yeah, let me ask you about that. The brokerage captaincy, because you guys have pioneered, or I don't know if this has changed, the whole captaincy model where you'd have a, typically an asset-based carrier would own. Uh, the lanes of, of a facility outbound and inbound i assume so how does the brokerage captaincy work is it a regional or how is the focus
1: yeah it's it's re- it was regional in nature and i would say that it was a blend of kind of the usual suspects in the brokerage space um, that you would expect but it was also actually tapping into some of the strategic carriers that we have that have multiple product offerings right so Um, we were leveraging the brokerage arm of some of our strategic partners to get that to fly.
0: And so is that something that you're continuing post-pandemic? And we'll talk more about this later. So this was something new you really didn't focus on. Is that something you're going to continue?
2: Yeah, it's something that we're definitely evaluating, Chris. I I think that the big thing, the benefits that we saw, especially from a facility characteristic, as Phil mentioned the, the last Kind of example is where we were leveraging some of our asset-based providers that have a logistics arm, where we can then leverage the gray box type solutions, where we can we can see efficiencies within our customer warehousing on getting preloaded trailers, as well as they're familiar with our network. Um, They can bring in some of those incremental um, capacity plays that can be a niche that sometimes isn't as big of a niche for their their asset. Lanes. And so it, it's getting to a balance. And I, and I would say that we're still evolving what that strategy looks like, I would say, post pandemic. And, and we're utilizing it in pockets, and especially as we say, how does that then incorporate into our annual RFP process? We're being a lot more kind of surgical and where we're, we're bringing that type of capacity into the market.
0: Yeah, so we'll we'll go into that a little more because that's something that everyone's struggling with to see how they how they bring in that dynamic side of things to it. But let me go back to the changes during the pandemic. Can you give us a rough idea of how your network changed? Was it mainly sourcing pickup points, or was it mainly destinations? Was it total lanes changing? What was the? How would you characterize the the change in your transportation network?
1: Is there an all all of the above <laughs> option? Um,
0: yeah, I. I Kidding
1: aside, I would say it was it was truly all all of the above. I think as we were responding to the changes in the business, we we obviously starting up new co-manufacturing lanes, and so we were increasing the number of origin destination pairs. We were we were changing the volume on existing lanes in our network, so we we're having to go out and contract more. But then even as the pandemic progressed, if you like reach back into our suppliers as well, as we saw more material disruptions, we've we actually found that we were having to go out and start up new suppliers so more new lanes in the network or we were having to reach deep into the network of our our existing suppliers to ship from new origins across their networks as well so it truly was kind of an all of the above answer
0: and so just as a general uh, sense because at DAT you know with the FMIC I look at a lot of the different shippers in there over 100 shippers and one thing I noticed is uh, just as you explained during the pandemic from from 2019 to 2021 uh, the number of lanes just dramatically increased, five to fives. Um, but also what increased was the percent of lanes that carried one load a year. Did you see the same kind of thing? Because so, so you're so sparse?
2: Right? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say. And what we, we touched on it a little bit during the previous podcast is I think as, you know, inventory was trying to catch up. Um, a lot. We we really progressed, I would say, in our evaluation of where inventory was positioned. And historically, we would try and move that into say our near customer warehouse to that customer. And I think why we saw a lot of that sporadic one to five shipments is yeah. it was a lot quicker and more cost effective to to just ship it from where we have the inventory. Um, and, and I would say that that's where we leverage those brokerage type um, strategies um, because we don't necessarily have that volume contracted. And um, it was hard to be predictive, I think, in a lot of those situations. As as you can imagine, things were just sure. moving around day to day, week to week.
0: Yeah, very reactive. Yeah, through our RFP,
1: we actually had to build out a low volume strategy across our network because of the number of lanes that did have kind of those onesie, twosie shipments on it. And that that really was actually the genesis for the brokerage captaincy model that, that we referenced a little earlier as
0: well. Makes sense. I know when I started doing bids for shippers in the 90s, the word broker and spot were four-letter words. <laughs> yeah. you, just didn't, you didn't plan it because we're, we're not going to use them this year, right? So, Phil, let me ask you, what was the biggest surprise during the pandemic? As you look back now over the last two years, what did you say at this time in August that totally surprised you since then?
1: I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't a surprise. Maybe, I think we always kind of knew it, but I think it was it was a startling realization, maybe, <laughs> that mm. how interconnected the global supply chain really is. Wow, I think yeah. as the pandemic progressed, um, and we started to see more and more material disruptions from our vendors that are giving us all the inputs required for our products, it was eye opening to read a news article about, say, like a, a difficult tapioca crop in Brazil only to realize that that means we're gonna be out of tapioca starch in four days for some of the products that we make here in the US. And so that to me was this, this, this wild realization of how truly interconnected the global supply chain is. Now, silver lining to that is we, we realize that at the with the pace of change, and, and especially with our competitors, everyone's kind of racing for the case, so to speak we realized that we needed to get in front of some of those disruptions. And so never, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? We actually stood up a risk, a risk COE, and we're using some really neat industry tools now that are trying to give us some early reads on when these disruptions are coming, because to be honest, a a matter of days or even hours in some instances, our ability to react to those disruptions can mean the difference between having something on shelf and not.
0: Yeah. And also it's, it's like, um, if you're being chased by a bear, You only have to be faster than the person you're with. So it's a competitive thing. So being able to respond in a week when someone else takes a month, that's a competitive advantage. Mark, are you going to add something?
2: Yeah. One thing I was just going to add
0: is I think even from
2: an operations perspective, so within the scope of my work is really more uh, around North American transportation. But I think just to build on another area where global supply chain, I'm seeing an impact more so on the transportation is, really where those import and export process happens. We're seeing a lot more, I would say, we talked about imbalance during the last podcast. I think some of that demand imbalance is coming from some of our import-export locations, obviously some of the port congestion, as well as some of the essential and non-essential items that are coming globally within the supply chain and the impacts to the intermodal network is something that was astonishing to us and I think something that we're closer to today than we were say pre-pandemic.
0: And imports, I'm gonna go on a limit, are not huge percentage of your business, is it? No. Most of your stuff is domestic production, domestic that's what I thought.
2: Yeah, but today. but I'd say our biggest impact on that specifically, Chris, is we're the backhaul usually for the the intermodal containers back to those ports, and so when there's congestion, you know that that whole fluid notion really impacts us back upstream and then the other thing that and I'm sure we'll get into this later in the podcast is really from a receiving standpoint, you know as the congestion, whether it's at the ramp locations or at our at the customer receiving, is impacting some of our plants, I would say, more upstream so that we have challenges around preloading and keeping those containers and trailers flowing. Uh, and that's becoming, you know, it was a big issue in the pandemic and I think continues to be an
0: issue even today. Yeah. So one of the things that talking to different companies is that the Delta and the Omicron waves seem to have a bigger impact than the initial wave because of the quarantining of things. Did, is that something that you guys faced? And is, is that still affecting you, the labor at your facilities for loading and unloading? Is that is that an impact still?
1: Yeah, it was absolutely an impact um, during those waves. And we we felt it probably most acutely across our, our distribution centers, our co-manufacturers, and our customers. Mark kind of talked about the congestion. It was very similar when we went through those waves. Every, every node of our network was congested because of some of the quarantining and the number of call offs that were occurring across the network what what it meant for us in in trans then is that at the at the end of the day we're still trying to do job one, right? Service the customer, make sure we're on shelf. And so we actually had to get creative and start using any available capacity across the distribution network in order to service the business. And so we had lanes that we were kind of dynamically shifting around the network, or we were even just dynamically shifting order by order to make sure that we could get product out of the buildings. And that was a a daily, sometimes a couple times a day, exercise to work through that process. Get our carriers lined up. Make sure we had the labor on that shift to move the product out of the building. It was pretty. It was a pretty fluid situation there for the better part of what would you say five or six months.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I, and I'd say one more build to that, Chris, is what we're seeing is as you talk about those different waves happening, customer demand, especially on a lot of our items. We, we see a big impact on that. And I also think that the other thing that we're seeing now that we're trying to get our arms around better data that says that as people now have the flexibility to work from home, are they choosing to live in different regions? So, for example, with the volume that we're seeing right now going into, say, our Southeast Regional Distribution Center is way outpacing what we had in our forecast for our bid because of the people choosing to live in the florida georgia carolina market or the texas market and then you're seeing the impact on some of the other regions that maybe uh, have seen a shift away from those areas and and we're definitely trying to see as we can gather more customer insights data to make sure that we're building that into our volume forecast with our carriers.
0: That's really interesting because I have some family members and a lot of friends who are essentially nomads. <laughs> yeah, You know, hey, I bet. So during the ski season, did you see a lot of product <laughs> going to the Denver area and everything because people <laughs> wanted to go out skiing out west? That That's really, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but you brought up a point, Phil, about uh, the decision-making being so fluid. One of the common traits talking to companies is that they made faster decisions. Uh, decisions were made in, in sitting around a table or a Zoom call that usually take months was made in a couple hours. Do you think that was just a pandemic artifact? Or do you think that fast decision making is gonna continue?
1: I think it's gonna to stick to the ribs. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, we've uh, we've rejiggered quite a few processes within our organization and have stood up something that we affectionately call the run. And it's it's essentially a way to connect the different layers of the organization on a more, more frequent cadence to review critical performance indicators and to drive escalations up the organization. And so the cadence that that, that process now leverages allows us to be a lot faster in our decision making. So that that's one. I would also say it spurred some really exciting conversation around how do we start to use technology to help with that decision making as well. Um, and so we're actually on the, uh, in the process of building out a large scale logistics um, technology program um, that we'll be leveraging over the next three years to kind of build out some new capabilities around connected data to, to help with that decision making and the agility that we need in today's environment.
0: So so that means no more Excel spreadsheets being passed around? Gonna try to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> so some companies talk about, and I think P&G is very vocal about this, citizen developers and, and pushing some of the technical skills down. To the frontline manager level is that something that is of interest at general mills as well i think i saw a presentation at general mills in 2019 or early 2020 where you talked about that is that an effort that's ongoing or is that a different initiative it's a
1: little different but it but it's it's in the same vein of what what i just mentioned on this this project we're working on around connected data is that it it was really more of a grassroots effort to kind of bring that to the forefront and get it sold into leadership to get the investment required to get it off the ground you know, we, we, we're we talking organizations talk a lot about command centers or control towers and whatnot. And what we've said is the people who do the work don't just need another dashboard on a TV monitor in a hallway. What they really need are tools at their fingertips to do their jobs differently. And that's what we're, that's what we're setting out to, to build.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So let's talk about through the pandemic. You know, you guys increased number of sourcing and contract the supplier base. I think the wall street journal had an article increased by like 20%, whatever that number is. Yeah. But then you guys snapped that back and that was in what the fall of 21. I think it was where the number of contract manufacturers went back. How did you guys handle that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I would say it was, it was honestly really dependent on the platform. Um, Some we were able to leverage some of the co-manufacturers we were able to leverage temporarily and then kind of snap back um, like was published. But a lot of the suppliers um, that we went to, we couldn't actually bring online fast enough to service the peak of demand anyway. And so we really dipped into inventory to service that initial ah, peak. I see, I see. Once, once some of these co-manufacturers are, are online uh, and we started to see demand kind of level off in that mid single digit clip, because we're still growing over the course of the pandemic, even after that initial spike, our supplier base continued to kind of evolve and, and expand. And so, like I mentioned earlier, we're not just bringing new suppliers online anymore. It's also actually expanding the use of existing suppliers, maybe just different um, mm-hmm. nodes within their network to service our business. So, I mean, all, all that, I guess, is to say that you know, we're, we're still evaluating um, the network. We're still evaluating where does it make sense to internalize some of this production versus leave it out at some of these co-manufacturers and leverage their capabilities. But
0: it seems like you didn't fall into the Peloton trap where you no. just overbuilt and think that, you know, so you, 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 what I like about you kept flexibility into it and you adjusted, but let's, let's talk about now that the pandemic's more or less receding. So, so Mark, how has the overall demand for General Mills products changed? Has it shifted? You said it's, it's still increasing, but how has it changed?
2: Yeah, I I would say that obviously we still are growing. um, But I, but I do think that you know, we, we talked um, qu- in quite a bit of detail on the previous podcast on the shift basically from our food service business into retail because of the stay at home. I would say that as we're sh- seeing that shift back, we're seeing growth in both of those platforms now um, in terms of I feel like from a sales perspective, you know, really looking at what platforms are, are successful. And you can even see during our recent acquisitions in the food service space. You know, I think we're doubling down on where we know that there's growth within the food service division as well as then in our retail segment, as we we talked about in our meals and baking and then the, the in in the growth that we saw in the at-home consumption. And then now as people are shifting to on-the-go, I think we're trying to make sure that we capitalize on, on the growth in those platforms as well. Um, and so I would say that overall... Um, that's where I think, as a company, we're still seeing that that growth come in, and and I think trying to get out in front of where the, that demand is going to be coming from to make sure that from a transportation and supply chain standpoint, we're able to execute to to meet those customer
0: demands. During the pandemic, a lot of companies, and I think General Mills included, reduced the number of SKUs just to focus in on the prime movers. And so the question was, will that go back out to increase the number of SKUs, or will we stay focused? Which which way did you guys go and where do you think it's going to go in the future?
2: Yeah, I think we definitely went through skew rationalization. I would say that what's probably driving more of that than is getting press is really what Phil touched on in terms of the material management and overall supply Mm. chain disruption. So I think that we're trying to shift and, and we're definitely seeing it in terms of trying to be more strategic on bringing day's supply inventory up on a lot of those key ingredients, um, especially the ones that are um, definitely distressed. I think the challenge has been is week over week, day over day, we don't know what's ultimately gonna be disrupted. Um, and so we're, 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 as Phil mentioned, we have a, a COE that kind of stood up that's looking across the broader platform And so I think to answer the question in terms of we're reading into our crystal ball, I don't know if we know that answer quite yet. I mean, I think we're going to have to see kind of inventories get into a better, more healthy position. I would say that not only from a material management standpoint, but also um, a finished good um, inventory position for us to then say that we can we have the capacity to grow. I think that the pressure we're under from a supply chain and specifically within transportation is, you know, that the those days supply targets are still pretty in the low numbers. Um, and so a lot of people still aren't feeling super comfortable in terms of kind of where where we're at. And so and able to or our ability to then be able to service the customer, especially as you know, the case bill requirements are, are pretty high that we want to make sure that we have on-shelf
0: availability for for the consumer. No, that makes, that makes sense. So do you think your operations now are closer to what you did pre-pandemic or during the pandemic? Or, or is it some mix of the two? You didn't just go back to the way things were, it is in 2019 again. No, I, I think that the biggest thing that we did from an operations
2: standpoint, and Phil touched on it, um, us giving the team more visibility, we've talked a lot of, with our team around being like better business leaders. And so making better business decisions, I think right. bubbling up cost trade-offs, I think as we looked at, as we were going through the pandemic, you know, we were in a, a, a full customer service mode. So whatever it took to get the customer, their their products, um, we, were, we were executing. And I think now as we look at, you know, where are we today? Uh, I think we're trying to be better business leaders. And so we're trying to get our arms around, you know, cost trade-offs, uh, making the right business decisions on mode conversion and balancing that service and cost offering. As you know, uh, um, inflation is, is definitely a hot topic around here. And so, as we know with the way fuels going and overall inflation, transportation definitely is still in the spotlight around cost. And so we're trying to make sure that as we have our customer teams wanting to, to deliver, say, team service, we want to make sure that they understand those cost tradeoffs right. and, and make sure that we're, we're making those right business decisions collectively together.
0: So one of the common threads that I see talking to different shippers is that supply chain and transportation have the responsibility for things getting the product to the shelf, like you've been saying, Phil, but not the authority. They have to be more persuaders than actually, you know, commanders. How has that affected or how does that work at uh, General Mills? Yeah, I think that's always kind of
1: bubbled kind of just below the surface for for a lot of years, but it came to the forefront or came to a head really during the course of the pandemic. And that, that run process I talked about a little bit earlier is really what's helped us navigate those waters. So the ability to connect the different nodes of the supply chain up and down the organization and to drive escalations not just across the supply chain nodes but actually back into the business teams as well is really what's driven a lot of conversation around the choices and the options that are available to service the business and teeing those up to our business leaders so that they can make those choices has really become an expectation over the course of the pandemic and it's that process that really helps enable us to do that better than we've ever done before
0: So do you think the processes have been, uh, what's the big benefit? Is it it's more automated? Is it um, it speeds up the process? At the end of the day, there's not a robot making the decision. though There's a human executive making the decision. And is the big difference that you're teeing up uh, decisions to make or, or choices or just providing more data?
1: Yeah, I think it's actually leaning on the data to bring visibility to the gaps that are in front of us. And then using the process to help expedite the decision making. And so our ability to run those kind of escalations or decision points through the organization and to the right supply chain leader or business leader is faster than we've ever done before. And we, the process is what's really enabled us to do that.
0: Got it. Got it. So let's take it back down to transportation for a little bit and tell me how was your portfolio mix changed pre, during, and post in terms of dedicated contract and that spot dynamic brokerage kind of mix?
2: Yeah, I would say that at a high level, it hasn't changed. I would say that have we went through evaluation periods, definitely, and especially in pockets, doing evaluation of should we get into dedicated? I would say that, you know, because we lean more on to our strategic partnerships that I I like to somewhat uh, joke with a few of the carriers that we get dedicated like capacity and service, but we don't necessarily pay for dedicated. Um, so we'll continue to partner with those providers to move trucks within empty miles to where the loads are. but we really never went fully in to to dedicated. I would say that has what has changed in terms of the makeup of our our carrier portfolio really not much. I, I would say that we're continuing to evaluate and where I like to, Kind of highlight back to our sourcing and procurement teams is I feel like we need to unpack you know the carriers that we have within our portfolio and better understand their networks along with our lane characteristics and how do we match those up and just like we we referenced in terms of I do think we're continuing to evaluate you know our brokerage strategy whether it's through the the brokerage captaincy like we mentioned whether it's leveraging uh you know the gray box type scenario through the rfp process or real-time dynamic feedback whether we're partnering with the digital freight providers or the traditional brokerage you know it's it's constantly an evaluation period but it's such a smaller percentage of our of our broader strategy um that that that's probably led us to not having to make any massive
0: changes One of the things that's happened during the pandemic is the increase in the number of carrier authorizations. I was just uh, writing something about this and there are over 171,000 new carrier authorizations filed since January 2020 through May of this year, 2022. Um, But of those, 75% of the total were owner operators. And so most of the added capacity, now some of it was lease drivers shifting. Um, Do you guys tap into that directly or is everything done through a broker for that? how do you access that massive amount of capacity?
2: Yeah it, it that's a definitely a hot topic that Phil and I had a few conversations on over the last couple of weeks is you know I, I would say that we, we tap into it through either the brokerage partners or we have, I think who we would consider our core asset based carriers that really, I would say have a business model that lean more towards those owner operators so we're so we're seeing that shift now. As the spot market is cooled off, we are seeing growth with certain who we would consider asset-based carriers because now those owner-operators are shifting into their operating authority and they're seeing a lot of upside growth. And so it's kind of why it was a hot topic between Phil and I is I feel like as the market conditions change you know, we believe that if we get into more of the lane characteristics and making sure that we find those solid matches, that we won't lose that owner operator capacity during the, the, the changes in business cycles or, or inflation cycles. And so if we can make sure where we're trying to partner with folks, and, and I think the key thing is, you know, what, what, you know, everyone's talked about for years, right? It's, it's driver pay and home time. And so can we then partner with these providers to make sure that we're finding sound carrier driver capacity networks that that can stay no matter what the market conditions are and then make sure that we can highlight the ones that we still have risk because we know that as the 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 economy changes or as right, the inflation right. cycle that's where we're going to have to lean into brokerage type scenarios. And, and as a goal for us, we want to try and get out in front of that as much as we can, because if we can get that under what we would consider our contracting pricing, that shouldn't, that should isolate us longer term, like like Phil mentioned in, in the lead off, that's where we feel like this strategy is won over, over the test of time is how we partner and make sure that we set up a, a transportation network that's appealing for for drivers, no matter what the market conditions are.
0: One of the challenges that I've seen, especially for smaller fleets, is the drop requirement, right? And they just don't have, whether a lot of manufacturers don't have enough space to have, you know, carrier pools from 32 different carriers at their lots or the carriers can't provide it. But the other one is the amount of dwell that's going on at facilities. Um, that's another focus that a lot of companies focused on. During the pandemic, to try to reduce that and labor exacerbated that. Um, How are you guys approaching that to reduce the dwell time, the wait time? Because we always focus on empty miles, reducing empty miles. No one really focuses on empty hours. And that's the thing that drives drivers out of the business, adds your costs and leads to the next RFP to higher costs. So how are you guys approaching dwell time reduction? Or is that not an issue? Have you already solved it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, uh, it's definitely something that's that's top of mind for us. I, I would say that uh, I was just on a call with one of our bigger retail uh, customers yesterday. And obviously, this is an extremely hot topic. And so we're, we're continuing to try and partner with innovative type solutions with, with those folks on the customer side. So where we can, even if we're running into constrained type facilities, as an example, is where can we lean into straight pull programs? Where are we right. working on getting preset live unload appointments? At the end of the day, as long as those drivers are in and out, they're willing to to, to live unload, but we need to make sure that those, those sure. receiving locations are like that dwell is is top of mind that we're all working towards a strategic solution to keep those drivers moving. Then I would say that from The internal, you know, metrics and what we're working on within what we would call our General Mills type locations, that's really where, um, as Phil's touched on, like our run metrics, we're able to then get real time information to our General Mills locations, somewhat down to even a daily level that so that we can stay within the dwell guidelines of each of the carriers um, we're partnering with them on trailer pools. We're partnering with them on percent of live loads, where we are brokering as an example. The big thing for us is we, we really don't want to put warehousing labor to something that a transportation provider isn't planning on picking up because that just con- that congests our docks. So my team really works closely with our warehousing team as well as our transportation providers of trying to be proactive as we can in the process to make sure that what there's no you know inefficiencies or effort loss in terms of warehousing and transportation, that we're going to apply labor to something that the warehousing group is going to be able to pick and load, and we're going to be able to pick up and ultimately deliver to our customers. So that's kind of the orchestration within the, the run metrics that We have definitely, I feel like, accelerated within the pandemic and and really had the driver uh, really um, front of mind as we're continuing to partner with these key
0: stakeholders, whether it's internal or external. Got it. Got it. Phil, let me switch to you and think about a longer term problem. um, The idea of forecasting and budgeting, Um, you know, whenever you have an anomalous event, you can't look to last year and say, oh, that's going to continue. Uh, both for your budget and your forecast. How did you handle that for both transportation or just forecasting in general? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) I would say
1: from, from our fiscal 20, which is right around at the end of fiscal 20 was just kind of the last time we talked to you on the podcast planning then for fiscal 21 was probably one of the most challenging budgeting cycles we ever had because of that, the, the anomaly and the, and the demand spike right. um, going from fiscal 21 to fiscal 22 was a little bit easier because they were, they were a bit more common, but what it really put a kind of spotlight on is the need to actually try to drive as much subjectivity out of our budgeting process as possible. And so we still use uh, a process where we, we look at historical flows We have some business overlays that adjust for demand. We use the inflation guidance from our bid um, to kind of build out our budget. But what's really neat is um, actually some of your old friends on our analytics team here helped us build out a transportation stat model that we've now used as kind of a sidecar to our financial process for the last six months. Basically what it does is it takes historical flows, operational performance, and KPIs, it actually goes external and pulls in some external indices and some benchmarks and then estimates our spend. We've leveraged it for the last several months, and it's actually been able to deliver accuracy within a couple of percent of our actuals. And so it's helping us build confidence that we've got a tool in our arsenal now that we feel like can better predict what our financials are gonna be, even even if we don't necessarily see it that way. It's forcing us to think a little bit differently and scrub some of our assumptions along the way.
0: Now, budgeting for the line haul costs and for fuel, I assume are handled very differently. Because you have no control over fuel uh, for that, so how how do you handle that, and how is that going? Because what is I just saw the diesel price. What was it? They just announced five fifty or something, five forty. It's dropped since the June peak by thirty whole cents, but it's still high. And I mean, I'm talking to some shippers. The big change they had to change their fuel surcharge table because it didn't go high enough, right? So so how are you guys incorporating that?
1: Yeah, we haven't had to change our fuel surcharge program. We've we've been okay. Um, it is a flow through cost to our carriers, and we've been able to manage it actually pretty well through our sourcing organization and the hedges that they take. And so we we've actually landed in a in a fairly good position. I think the the larger the larger conversation is where do we have choices that could impact fuel? Okay. So where do we have options to like lean into intermodal conversion more? Or focus on operational efficiencies like reducing miles or touches in the network, versus just that kind of give the team business choices on how we ship product through the network. Right. Not not the just ship it mentality. So overall, I would say we're we're, we're managing <laughs> we're managing the variability <laughs> and the volatility in fuel um, through our hedging but it's opened the door to a lot of other questions about how we ship through the network.
0: Did you guys have any challenges when the uh, department of energy didn't publish diesel rates for three weeks? That was fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So has this affected your OTIF, the way you approach that? Is it more in full now rather than on time or are you guys always perfect anyway?
1: We're always perfect. Um, (laughs) No, I would say that the the split of focus is still, is still even across the organization. Our planning organization still is laser focused on on in full and really working back with with our customers to make sure that we're achieving the best we can with the material disruptions that are in front of us. And from a transportation standpoint, it's still all hands on deck to make sure that we're meeting that LRAD um, for our customers. I I think it's important that we focus there, knowing that um, sometimes what is requested as the original delivery date isn't even a feasible (laughs) delivery date. and so really, really getting our teams focused and getting our carriers focused around LRAD um, has been the ticket for us through the pandemic. So, so what is LRAD? Last requested arrival date. Last, last for, requested. Okay.
0: okay. Last question for you, Mark, and then Phil, if you want to add into this, uh, what silver linings from the pandemic going through two years, give or take, what were some of the things that uh, you guys learned as a company or personally that you're applying now post-pandemic?
2: Yeah, I, I think for me, it, it's two things. One is people, right? And, and that we're working with or have working for us, um, who we consider best in class. And so whether that's the drivers that we're selecting, the carriers that we're working with, our, our internal teams, um, you know, we all live through some, some challenging times. I, I think that um, we definitely open our eyes in terms of even how our org is structured. And you know, we talked a lot about you know, data and tools and and process. But I think that through the pandemic, it really showed where we need the people to to be able to bubble up and make those decisions. And so from a staffing perspective, I think we really now have landed in a good spot from, from an org structure perspective. And just like I touched on, you know, making sure that when we're engaging you know we're thinking about um the, the driver and our carriers as we're building out our transportation strategy of the future um and then the second thing for me is really just that speed of decision making process how we leverage um you know we, we've touched on in a few different points throughout the podcast you know that this whole um thought process around our run and how we have from an operations perspective we're able to make decisions quicker we're able to drive you know um information both up and downstream throughout the 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 org structure and overall just just speed to decision making i think is just something that i i would say highlighted you know as a silver lining post
0: pandemic anything to add there phil
1: yeah, I would echo what Mark said. The, o- the only thing that I would, I would build on is, I, I think over the last couple of years, since the last time we talked, I think the visibility of transportation and understanding the nuances of the market and the different market cycles within the industry, getting that visibility to our C-suite and even some of yeah. our senior leaders in supply chain has been a, a really big positive. You know, communication and education is always a challenge when folks aren't really close to the work. And what we found is that while our our C-suite had a lot of questions, there there were still a lot of supply chain leaders within our organization that maybe haven't worked directly in transportation before that had a lot of questions about how things worked. And so we used the opportunity to educate folks on, um, like with market intelligence data, we did education in bite-sized chunks. Um, And then probably the most important thing that we did over the last two years is that we reframed what success meant for our organization in transportation by using some external benchmarks. And so interestingly enough, I had a conversation with our CEO just uh, two months ago, and he and I were talking about what success looks like in the current fiscal year. And I told him if, if he were to ask me whether or not we were, we were performing well relative to our 2019 um, performance indicators, the answer is a resounding no. But if you ask me if we're performing well relative to our peer set in the existing market conditions, the, the answers are resounding. Hell, yes, we are. And we can back it up with data. And I think those conversations are things that have never happened in the past um, and have really helped kind of cement our strategy um, with our C-suite and our and our senior leaders across the supply chain.
0: You know, that makes sense. Better understanding the market. That's another common thing I, I, I get asked. I wish you could explain truckload contracts to my CFO. Um, the other thing is there's a, there's so much press out there for people to read that the spot market is, you know, way below contract. So there's a lot of our expectations. Why aren't you buying all the spot? Forget these contracts. And so, yeah, a lot of interesting things. The thing that I liked what you said, Mark, is, and we're seeing this more and more, there's such a focus, especially here at MIT or even at DAT, the technology. Technologies, you know, we're not going to have robots make decisions, though, that all the technology that seems to matter helps people make better decisions. It doesn't make decisions for them. And so that's great to see that you guys are seeing that as well. So thanks for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And it sounds like you've had a fun two year ride uh, during the pandemic. Absolutely. It's great to be back on the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Chris. Well, thanks again, Phil and Mark. I really appreciated having you on. Everyone stay tuned for the Truckload Market Update with Dr. Inami Yu.
3: Welcome to the the Over-the-Road Truckload Market Update for July 28, 2022. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. For dry van, active rates are down 1%, spot rates up 2%, replacement rates negative 1%. This means the new contract rates are about 1% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 2%, spot rates up 2%, and replacement rates down 1%. On the intermodal side, active rates are flat, spot rates down 2%, and replacement rates positive 2%. Finally, on the flatbed side, active rates are up 1%, spot rates up 3%, and replacement rates down 2%.
0: So, Enom, this is a weird week. I mean, a lot of mixed signals coming in. It looks like van, reefer, and flatbed are all negative for the uh, replacement rates but it seems like spot rates are going up a little what's going on
3: yeah I think it's 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 um, confusing in the sense of going in the opposite direction but I think it's a much shorter term uh, I think we will watch for that for the next week I I can't see a reason why uh, other than some seasonal short-term effects and and so what about
0: fuel has that uh, I know it's dropped a little bit how is that affecting things
3: you know as it's dropping we see about 50 cents drop over the um, you know, compared to the last month, which is a good uh, six, seven cents for the for the shipper, so it's it's definitely um, um, you know a bonus for the shippers because they were carrying the full burden as far as the contracts are concerned.
0: Right, we're still way above what we were a year ago, or even six months ago, but it is dropping from that that peak we had in June. And what about the spot rate differential? Are we still below? Is contract still below spot for van and reefer? How's that looking?
3: Yeah, it's it's still below. Uh, we are seeing on the dry van side about 25 cents spots below contract, and 18 cents on the reefer side. So it's you know very very much below the contract rates.
0: Okay. Any thoughts as we head into August? What we expect to see?
3: I think the the trend will continue as far as um, the contract rates are concerned. Uh, anecdotally, we are hearing uh, you know shippers are taking targeted on on targeted lanes. They are taking somewhere between eight to 15% reductions. So I, I think shippers, you know, they did learn quite a bit in the last upward spike, so they are not taking wholesale reductions, rather they are taking very targeted reductions. So I think it, it's uh, also for shippers, it's a good time to reset their, um, uh, what do you call it? not only the playbook, but also the the actors in the playbook, right? I mean, they can surgically replace where things have to be changed but no shipper is looking for large scale churn. I think there is a significant cost associated with that for the shippers. And and, and churn just doesn't mean that just replacing a shipper, but I mean, replacing a carrier, but also for the shipper, they they want to make the carrier successful. So that is a good three to six months process to get a carrier successful in their own network. So shippers are minimizing the churn and selectively changing uh, rates. Uh, and and majority of the rate reductions that we are hearing from the shippers are without uh, keeping right. the same incumbents.
0: Yeah, it sounds like uh, shippers remember what's happened over the peak and they have long memories of what carriers stayed with them prior to the service and kept their costs reasonable and those who didn't. And they're um, correcting their assignments uh, in, in, with that in mind. So that's great. Okay, so I guess this concludes this week's Truckload Market Update. Thanks, Enon. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam and myself, Chris Kaplish, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freight Vine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freight Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.